Patients on the Move, a podcast about patient engagement in life sciences. Welcome to the second episode of our podcast series in which hot topics, including new initiatives and alternative viewpoints on patient engagement within the life sciences sector will be covered. And although patient engagement becomes more and more common in our world, it's absolutely crucial that it is also meaningful and sustainable. With this podcast series, we would like to contribute to achieving that goal. My name is Roger Lechtenberg and I'm a senior partner and co-owner of Edmedicum. And today I'm sitting here with Anna Mingerens, former chief development officer and currently scientific advisor of the Lulu Foundation. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. And Philip van Galwitz, a patient activist for the CDKL5 rare disease community and also a co-founder and managing partner of Edmedicum. Hello, everybody. Great that you both can join us today and, uh, and have a nice discussion and chat about, I would say, patient community-driven alliances and everything that comes with that and what are the advantages and potential disadvantages or challenges that we come across in this, this yeah, particular field, I have to say. And maybe to start off with, with Anna uh, first. So could you tell me a little bit about your, basically your history, your motivations and your, your drive or why you became active in the patient community and also you know, what you're doing, um, uh, particularly in the field of the patient community driven alliances? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a scientist and I've wanted to develop treatments and medicines since I'm seven and it's been a while and that's because my grandfather was a clinician a doctor and when I was a child I thought we were like invincible like nothing bad could ever happen every time someone was sick we'll just call grandpa and he will fix it and then when I was seven within six months my baby sister was born with serious disease we lost my grandma and that had a big impact on me because that was a new concept and I felt powerless and I wanted to help so I asked my dad, he's the one that explained me that doctors don't have all the answers and they don't have all the solutions. And I asked who comes up with those and he told me that scientists, those are biologists. So by the time I was eight, I said, I'm gonna be a biologist and I'm very stubborn and I'm gonna find cures. So I went on to study biology, got a PhD, went to industry. But see, my driver is not the technology like in an engineer. My passion is the human side of medicine. And that's why working closer to the patients and seeing firsthand their needs and what they need built and then help them build is what drives me. And that's how I ended up working with the patient communities to help them bring new treatments. In a way, I'm on a lifelong journey to give doctors the tools and the answers that they need so families have answers and medicines and feel as safe as I did when I was a kid. I can only say <laughs> extremely motivating and passionate story, I have to say, uh, where it started very early on in your age. So so thanks for the introduction. Um, Philip, what, what's your story? You know, there is probably a lot to say about where it started with you and why you actually in the end became an entrepreneur and setting up an Edmedicum as, as a result of that. Absolutely. That has a lot to do with my second daughter. I have three daughters and the second one is 21 years old now. And she has a very rare genetic disease, which is called CDKL5. This at some point made me a patient activist and that immediately leads into an alliance uh, because it's the international CDKL5 family alliance. Um, that makes a big difference globally. And it's a beautiful example for how patient power can actually be developed um, across the globe, really, 
in a very rare disease. And it, it really made a big, big difference when more and more families from different countries joined forces and said, we are going to push the envelope. I think uh, that's the saying. So that's a beautiful example of an alliance, uh, certainly motivating me very much to uh, get engaged in that uh, field, but also another motivator to uh, actually found Admedicom at some point when uh, I thought, yes, we need to sort of build a facilitator for bringing different uh, stakeholders together. First, the patient side, and then the industry and other stakeholders uh, in order to be stronger together for certain purposes that patients and their families need to um, to to benefit. Then in my personal life, uh, also, I experienced that again and again, that alliances just make a difference in terms of how what can you achieve uh, with uh, two associations that we founded over the last years. One is about inclusive living uh, of people with disab disabilities, and one is for uh, inclusive work uh, of people with disabilities, uh, including those who have uh, cognitive and there again, it's really about the swarm intelligence and the alliance of the affected families first and then finding the right partners. And I truly believe in this, that as G's as we may be as individuals, we are just better together. And, uh, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about patient-driven alliances. Let's let's try to dive in a little bit into patient-driven alliances, because I can imagine that not for every purpose a patient-driven alliance is always the best approach, or is it? Well, maybe I can get that one. Uh, from a scientist perspective, working with patients, I think the patient-driven alliances where patients can really make a difference fall in the pre-competitive space. So as you're developing medicines, there is a first part of building the knowledge, building the science, the tools, getting the field ready for treatments, and then specific the drug development or all the type of therapies get developed. So that is a line between pre-competitive, what belongs to the disease and the knowledge, and what is competitive. And where I see the big impact and the big role of the patient-driven alliances is with the patient focus on that pre-competitive space around the disease. And that's important for projects that are usually really complex that could not be done alone, and that require many stakeholders, regulators, many companies obviously the patient groups, to organize all of that. It's really tough. Uh, regulators, that's not their job. Companies tend to compete and might not have the long-term view of a fail to build that. And that's where the patient groups can have the biggest impact to bring all of those together as part of alliances. So that's what I think is important for the patient community to work on that clinical trial readiness, the pre-competitive space. Do we have preclinical models, do we have research tools, the regulatory education, the patient registries. What I would not recommend to patients to try to get so much involved is more in the competitive space. For example, do something where the data is exclusive for a company or invest financially in a drug program. That type of collaboration is better left for companies if they want to co-develop something. So pre-competitive is about the disease, competitive about a specific drug program, I think alliances driven by patients should remain in the pre-competitive space where they are so critical and so important. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And um, I, I was looking for examples. It's relatively uh, simple to find, actually, 
in the pre-competitive space. So, for example, when it's about patient journeys that uh, several stakeholders really join forces on, uh, very often done with medical societies and patient organizations, um, several of them, of course, but more and more also joining companies who to fund this or co-fund this and really also bring their expertise in and their questions in so um, that we can also avoid repetition. The patient organizations, of course, as big as they may be, there are lots of people who are first sick themselves or their uh, family members are. Um, uh, second, they give their voluntary and free time to these organizations very often, uh, or usually they do. Um, and then several companies or other stakeholders approach them again and again with the same questions. Although mm -hmm. it's proprietary, it's about patient journey, yeah. it's about experience, it's about priorities, it's about patient preferences and so on and so forth. And it's always the same questions. Yes. So, uh, that's one of the reasons why Eurodis, for example, or We Can, or PPMD, or um, so in Duchenne, or uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation in Parkinson, they came up with these community ad boards or advisory boards where they try to gather these different stakeholders around pre competitive again subjects that will be of interest for all of them sure. um, and, and, and try to kill uh, several. <laughs> Uh, flies, uh, at least uh, in, in, in German, that's the saying, um, at, at, the, at one time, right? Um, uh, and then another beautiful example for uh, such a typical um, field for, for alliances, newborn screening. Uh, mm -hmm. So we, we saw this six uh, company uh, coalition or, or uh, funding consortium uh, of six companies, uh, which was triggered and, and driven by PPMD, the Duchenne uh, group in the uh, in the United States in 2019 in New York, still going, I believe, uh, to screen uh, more than 100,000 babies. And that was a $5 million project uh, at the time. And they kicked this off with not only, but also very, very essentially uh, the help of six companies. So that's that's something that otherwise can't be done, as you said, uh, Anna, before. It, it, one alone can't do that. So it's it's really a, a beautiful example for why to join forces. And I think you can tell a very similar story about CDKL5 uh, in the Lulu Foundation. I was thinking about the same clinical study when you were talking about that. And that's why in, in rare diseases, it might be even more important to have these coordinated alliances when it comes to clinical research, because indeed in the CDKL5 deficiency disorder community, we were confronted with a problem where we had many companies interested in the space and they all wanted to run observational studies to learn more about the natural history of the disease, but they were gonna do it separated. And that could essentially mean using all of the patients that are diagnosed today. Yeah. That's a particular problem for rare diseases where you need to avoid that. And at the Lolo Foundation, one charity working in the CDKL5 deficiency space, we were able to sit them down and coordinate and share the resources so they split the cost of the study. We only need to run a study, it's very large, 100 patients for a rare disease, so that's the size of a phase three. And we don't need to do 20 plus 20 plus 20 plus 20, as you say, coordinating that. Now the question is, who should have the burden? of coordinating those initiatives and making sure that they happen. Because yeah. different stakeholders might have different drivers are also 
I don't know, fears. Before you go to the drivers, maybe, and, <laughs> and, and who's going to, to do that, maybe one thing, to, just before we, we go into the details, how difficult is it to get something started, basically? Because ultimately, it's all about money, isn't it? Uh, you know, get to, it's not all about money. It's about the drive and the passion to get somewhere, of course. But you need to, to have some funding available from several companies to make it happen in practice, I guess. Isn't that always a, a, a big hurdle to take in the beginning? And isn't it not that everybody is waiting for the other party to to give the first bit of funding in and, and then, yeah, then we will join as well. And, and basically everybody's waiting for each other and nothing happens, but both your viewpoints on that. Well, I think that is just uh, right to the point. Of course, this is one of the major challenges and an alliance where you're, where, where you're working with several stakeholders and you're trying to identify and very well define the common interest that can actually compose and keep together that group of alliance partners over time. Um, that's uh, that's really challenging. It's an art, I think. Uh, and you need you know, very strong people to actually achieve that. Is it, uh, is it easy? No, it's not. It's, uh, it's certainly uh, easier to go on your own uh, and just do something that you don't have to uh, align on with anybody else. Uh, but it, again, that is subject, I guess, of identifying what are these projects that really require such an alliance. I think another, um, at least one of the recipes for success at the beginning uh, could be that uh, that really to look at the coalition of the willing. So those people who don't need a lot to get excited about it yeah. uh, and uh, and you don't lose time in persuading yeah? and, and start with these three or four and then step by step win others over because you're already a, a, a smaller uh, alliance and, and uh, certainly needs to grow, but you have it already as a start. So I have to say there are already two of the coalition of the willing here in the call, uh, for sure. And uh, and that's great to hear. So, so Anna, can I maybe back to what you wanted to say about getting into the operational execution? Who's coordinating an alliance? Who's making sure to drive it from from A to B in practice, because you have like five, six, seven stakeholders maybe in an alliance or even more, and everybody has its own agenda, own perspective, and of course with a common goal, but but still somebody needs to drive it, right? Yeah, exactly. And when we look at the different stakeholders and who could drive that, so in my experience, regulators are very welcoming to collaborations involving patients because a, they really want to hear the patient voice and perspective, but also because they want to align the industry, the design of trials, get one single view of the disease. So they're very welcoming, but they are not going to lead that. And then many of the drug development companies are also reluctant in part to collaborate with patients for some paternalistic views, or oh, we don't want to disappoint them. Uh, sometimes they just don't even have internal people trained to work with patients. You, they haven't generated enough internal buy-in, but more often it's because they're reluctant to collaborate with each other. And any of these alliances is going to involve many companies. And that's why the patient community ends up becoming the one that has to lead that. And going back to what you guys were discussing, here's the challenge is funding. 
because as a patient organization, often it will work if you build the product and then pharma will buy it. Did you build the registry? Did you do the clinical study? Did you do the things? They like to come and buy it, not co-develop it. The challenge is that. How do you get to bring them early so you can co-develop, so the companies can finance that? And that requires a lot of changes, not only in the mentality of pharma to come early and collaborate, but in how we build and support patient groups. Um, they need the funding to get this started because they're going to need to have professionals. They need the knowledge, they need the bandwidth to have at least the initial design. So we're moving a bit towards a space where communities that manage to get started with those initial resources to get more professionalized can start these projects and bring the companies and co-develop and the others are left a bit behind. So I'm quite excited about organizations like yours. Uh, Philippe, you were calling at medical a facilitator. I call you all the bilingual organizations, bilingual because you speak pharma, you speak patient, and you can build that bridge. So I think all of that, it's, uh, it's becoming more and more common and is helping us bring along the communities that might not be so sophisticated. Because otherwise, if you don't start it as the patient community and get the study started and everybody around the table, it just doesn't happen and the disease is almost left behind. So it is complex and it's not just money. As you said, you also need to align, but an important part is money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, one other challenge on the patient side, um, of course, is also that uh, we touched on that a little earlier. There's a resource, a resource constraint very often. The resource constraint um, is relevant not only to people, capacity, but also to energy, energetic level, yeah, because all of this is usually done in free time. Uh, on top of other things, um, it's also uh, a, a matter of know-how, because many, many of the people who get engaged in uh, in patient advocacy may not necessarily have any know-how in what research and development uh, for drug development is. Um, sure. They may have no idea, usually they don't, um, it, what it means to compose an alliance for driving a new registry or a, a newborn screening program. So how should we, any of us, if we were not exposed to this professionally, how should we ever have an idea about that? Yeah. So. I think what is really essential in this is that when a patient organization really uh, wants to manage these kind of um, uh, projects, that either they have a very professional organization already themselves, that is the exception to the rule, yeah. uh, or that they look for these kind of um, alliance managers who can really help them to put the pieces in place uh, and and it really give them also a strong mandate look for people um, that really know how to run this understand the patient side understand the industry side understand the subject and uh, know how to almost um, direct an orchestra it can also help to put up the governance such that these projects can work also in crisis mode, yeah, because there will be conflicts of interests and there will be milestones reached and then everybody has a different view on how this needs to be renegotiated for the next step and uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really something that, that requires very competent people who can help to keep things together. I think it's all quite rightly said there, Philip, but isn't that also not the challenge or the, the scary part of the future for patient engagement in a way, because 
we are professionalizing very much the, the, the patient-driven activities and the patient-initiated activities, and, and their role becomes more and more and more important. You say it quite rightly so, they don't have always the capacity and the resources from all kinds of perspectives to, to actually manage it in the end, or they don't have the know-how. In the end, isn't it not simply that that in the end, the pharma companies need to just step in again and then just do it because the patients can't do it? Uh, or is it, do we need something else to make it happen? What, what, what do we need for the future of patient engagement? Because I think there's a bright future ahead, lots of opportunities, but at the same time, I'm seeing more and more of these hiccups in the future now coming as well. Anna, any thoughts on that? Because you, you, you talked a little bit about that, I think, in, uh, in, in the recent symposium that we hosted in Utrecht uh, on, on the future of patient engagement, which was quite a nice uh, happening, of course, with a lot of discussion. Uh, but but you, you talked about a social contract, uh, which is important. Exactly. Yeah, yes, yes. Because all of the pieces that we say are needed exist. The money exists. The knowledge exists, the bandwidth exists, the patient expertise exists, and how to make those connect in a way that better serves not just the patients, but the fields and get it advanced. There were these frictions we were talking, and one of those was reluctancy sometimes of companies to come into a space early enough and help co-develop all the knowledge and all of that. And I think that's going to change because we're seeing many trends towards co-developing with patients. So we're seeing we're seeing patient groups becoming more and more professionalized. We're seeing this growing ecosystem of the bilingual organizations, the facilitators to help advance the field with registries, even with drug discovery, not just with the clinical part, regulators making a push for that. So I think the rules are changing, in particular in rare diseases, in what needs to happen in this pre-competitive space. And what I would like to see happen, I don't know if this is a a wish, a prediction, or a determination to make it happen, but I would like to see happen a sort of social contract where companies that want to work in a particular disease have to collaborate and add to the community efforts that are trying to advance the field and the risk, the development of treatments, that it will not be okay to show up with your treatment ready for trials without having added to those patient registries or endpoints or campaigns to diagnose more patients, as Philippe was explaining. I don't think it will be okay for much longer to see patient communities having to lift an entire field and companies just watching and prioritizing based on how much those patients have managed to raise money and there is the space. Right now we need to advocate, but I kind of see this has to happen, a different way of working, more collaborative, more effective, where companies that are active in a space need to add to those ongoing efforts to build the field. And as we clarify the drivers and remove the barriers, I think this is how the near future should look and hopefully will look. Maybe as a final uh, final, final remark on, on this, would regulators or any other overarching body uh, or independent body be an important player to make this social contract happen? Or is it basically the good conscience of the pharma companies to make a change in, in corporate social responsibility? Uh, what is the... Both, both are probably required, but what do you think? Is there a certain body that could really facilitate this more? So I personally think that, first of all, I like the, the, the term social contract and a new social contract on this very, very much, because I think it really requires a new thinking. 
Uh, when we all request um, the involvement of patients, we need to equip uh, those people who live with the diseases with the tools and the means to actually do that. And, uh, and that requires a social effort of, of society. Of course, this involves regulatory uh, bodies. And, uh, and I think we've seen that already so from FDA and from EMA in particular. And it, there's much more pressure also on all of the stakeholders that uh, require approval and require scientific advice of these bodies. Uh, to actually involve patients. Again, I think what uh, is, is really important for both bodies and, and, and the request also from, from my side as a patient caregiver and a, and a patient advocate, um, again, they also need to give the patient side the tools and the means, yeah, and not asking the same kind of um, uh, almost, you know, diligence and knowledge and expertise um, as, as they would request from other experts in the field. But we do need other models. We need, do need funding. We do need processes behind this that actually facilitate a good exchange. And we need support for the patient side by professionals. That's absolutely crucial uh, for um, preparation, for actual uh, performance execution and, and, and participation in these exchanges, and then also for um, basically the translation of outcomes of all of this to the patient community. It's, we do need that support, professional support, uh, otherwise this is not going to be sustainable over time. I think these are perfect final words of this, this very interesting chat that we had together. Um, uh, so thanks very much, Anna, for joining us today. And for you also, Philip, uh, thanks very much for your, for your insights and passionate contributions. I would like to basically thank everybody who's listening to this podcast. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for the next episode, which will follow shortly. Thank you very much. <laughs>